This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. I have extra water this morning just in case there's a lightning strike. <laughs> Holy Gospel according to Matthew 13, 44 to 53. <laughs> Front row is nervous. No. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, and finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets throughout the bath. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all this? Jesus asked. They answered, yes. <laughs> and he said to them, therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out his treasure what is new and what is old. When he had finished these parables, Jesus left that place. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, so here we go. Hell. Right? An idea that evokes scary images has maybe haunted our, our dreams and, and certainly a doctrine that's been misused and abused by the church for centuries. Uh, in Dante's Inferno, which is one of the places uh, written in the early Middle Ages, uh, that we get a lot of our current imagery for hell. Uh, in the first canto, he has Virgil, the Latin poet, leading him through a, a tour of hell. Um, and he begins the tour with these words. I think and judge it best for you to follow me. Already there's questions. And I shall guide you, taking you from this place through an eternal place where you shall hear the howls of desperation, and see the ancient spirits in their pain, as each of them laments his second death. And the sign on the gate above the entrance to hell says, according to Dante, through me the way into the suffering city, through me the way to eternal pain through me the way that runs among the lost. Abandon every hope, all who enter here. You probably heard that line at least. <laughs> right, haunting stuff. Terrible stuff. The website beautifulchristianlife.com didn't know that was a website, but it is. And it says, <laughs> according to Jesus, there will be more souls in hell than in heaven. 
<laughs> Beautiful Christian life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit like some false advertising there. <laughs> but I do want this to be a conversation and dialogue more than a sermon. Um, so I want to start with asking, uh, well, many of us were given views about hell when we were young. And so what, uh, what were you taught about hell growing up, and do you still hold to that view? So we'll start there. We can get into where you might be now, but let's start with what were you taught, and you, you can add whether or not you still align with that. I was one of those lucky few who was a UCC kid. <laughs> so I never got a lot about hell, but my, my sense that I got was it was sort of like a timeout chair. <laughs> where, where you had to think about all the things you'd done wrong until you were sorry and were ready to move on. Okay, thank you. More of a purgatory kind of view. <laughs> right? wow, a lot less trauma involved. Right? <laughs> um, my dad always said he was an atheist, and I really thought he was probably agnostic. But he said, there is no heaven and hell. We make our own here on earth. Okay. Okay. Uh, these aren't the answers I was expecting. Yeah. <laughs> wow. 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 That's good. All right. Don't worry, I got one that <laughs> <laughs> um, Basically, I was taught that it's just an eternity of burning. Oh, yeah. Which seems like a huge nightmare. Yeah, you can handle it. And no, I don't believe that anymore. <laughs> okay, yeah. I think I'm another one of the lucky ones. Um, when I was really young, um, my mom had a, a brain tumor operation. Mm -hmm. And beforehand, she was like, super like born again christian like saving everybody's souls and kind of judging everybody and just not exactly having the right view she said during the operation she just remembers light and a voice saying all paths lead to heaven there's no one right answer wow. so she raised us like going to the woods and saying this is god this is church wow. and when we had those discussions about like heaven and hell she said you know i think god just sends our souls back and we have to start again if you did bad in this life Okay. So she had an experience that changed, that changed her mind. Yeah, over here. I'm probably, what was you expecting? <laughs> it was like hell was almost imminent and that we were uh, like walking out banana fields and getting saved meant getting saved from all of that. Yeah. So that's how I was brought up. Yeah. <clears throat> Let me read uh, a little snippet from Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> Puritan preacher. Um, between him and Dante, they covered a lot of ground. He wrote, Hi friends. He wrote, Oh sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath. A wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath, and you are held over it in the hand of God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe 
and burn it asunder. So that's, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God, that you're just, by the grace of God, God isn't letting go into terrible awfulness, which is also from God. And then he wrote further, the wicked shall be forever full of quick sense within and without. Their heads, their eyes, their tongues, their hands, their feet, their loins, and their vitals shall forever be full of flowing, melting fire, and they shall eternally feel the torment. Not for one minute, not for one day, not for one year, not for one age, not for a hundred ages, but forever and ever, without any end, and they shall never, ever be delivered. And he was a congregationalist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wow. Whew. No wonder we're so screwed up. <laughs> That's more along the lines of what I, I mean, we held up Jonathan Edwards as like this, you know, hero of the faith. And a picture of piety. But that's scary stuff. That is scary stuff. So wondering what questions do you have about hell? And maybe what troubles you about hell as popularly understood? Okay. It troubles me a whole lot that little innocent children are filled with that kind of understanding and basically traumatized. And the trauma lives with them for the rest of their life unless they happen to come here. <laughs> what other questions are troubles? Sure, credit. My mom uh, taught us growing up that yes, we have the fire and brimstone, but like hell is absence of God. And if you don't have God in your life, that's excruciating. That was her way of getting around that, I think. Um, so does the absence of God have to be excruciating for people that don't have God? Yeah, open the door there maybe to a, a, a wider view beyond the, the fire. Yes. I mean, even as I was taught as a kid about how bad it was. What really struck me was that it was eternal. Yeah. And I don't know, even a mediocrely bad place for eternity just didn't seem, I, I don't know, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. Are we really eternal? And, and what we do here in this, in the comparison to eternity is a very big slice for me. Right. It makes all the difference right. about where you are in eternal. It seems kind of lopsided. You have a little chance here, and then eternally you are either in heaven or hell. I mean, that, that was always a question that stuck to me. So. That's how purgatory is for. Yes, that's. <laughs> it feels incongruous. There's not even a way to compare, you know. 30 to 90 years of life, or 4 to 90, or whatever, a human life of whatever age to eternity, like you can't compare it and to say that you've set the table for that destination does feel a little uh, out of balance, overweighted. And the thing that Jonathan Edwards talked about, like that you'll feel that pain 
you know, every moment. And I liked what you said, even if it was mediocrely bad. <laughs> that forever, not, that's not great. Yeah. That reminds me of the great divorce. <laughs> it's like mediocrely bad. Yeah. Think about time. Like time on earth is day by day by day by day. And then there's eternity. But in, like in heaven, are you like living day by day by day? Because mm -hmm. you're thinking it's eternal. But is it, so it's a kind of the same question of is hell day by day by day, the eternal pain? Like how does time pass in your mind if you're feeling either good or bad for eternity? Yeah. Another 24 hours, you know, do you make breakfast in hell? I don't know. It's not good. The bacon is always burnt. Oh, excellent reference. What, what bothers me is that it's, it's a completely unbiblical notion. Yeah, Dante's Inferno and you know, creatures along the way, but uh, there's, there's just nothing in the gospel that has anything to do with hell, especially the image, maybe any at all, if you look at it closely, but certainly not the image that we get from Dante. Yeah. So we've taken it in this culture as if it's gospel and it's, it's not from there at all. Yeah, that's an excellent, uh, excellent call, Doug. And, and if you look even, you know, if we go back to Genesis and, and the Hebrew scriptures, they talk about the idea of Sheol, which was the Hebrew understanding of the place of the dead, and that was the righteous and the unrighteous. Like everyone went to Sheol, and, and I'm not even sure if that was an eternal place, but it was just a general gathering place where you go when you die. And scholars note and notice that in the biblical literature, in the time between the Testaments, so to speak, as they have uh, the people of Israel have exposure to Persian thought and Greek thought that notions about the afterlife begin to shift somewhat. But even in Jesus' time, the understanding is we're not a monolith at all. There were some Jews who believed in the resurrection of the dead, some who felt when you die, that's it, um, and, and a variety of views. So there was not this one monolithic view that's the view of the Bible, as Doug noted. And certainly in the Gospels, you've got you to work really hard um, to find what we imagine is there. Well, um, it's been the ongoing impetus for missions, you know, this ongoing project of preaching the gospel to all nations and just keeping tabs. I, I saw on some website where somebody made a map of, you know, where the Christians were and where the heathen were and, you know, what parts of the world haven't we reached yet. Yes, I was a part of a very evangelistic group in college and the goal was you know, share the gospel with every human that's possible. And I had, you know, I was required to share my faith with everyone on the floor of my dorm at a public university. That's a great way to be, to be cool. You know? I, mean, I don't know how I ended up with any friends at all. But it, it's exactly that notion that if people are going to spend eternity in hell, then you feel bad to not do everything you can to help anyone avoid that. It reminds you of that story that Andy Dillard tells of the Inuit who speaks to the missionary and says, if I, if you hadn't come and told me uh, about all of this, would I have to go to hell? And he says, well, no. And he's like, well, then why did you come and tell me? <laughs> you know, because that's often we believe that, well, those who never hear the gospel aren't responsible for it, a response to it. And it's like, I could have just saved a lot of time. <laughs> So for those of us who did grow up in the Reformed Church, I know that's not all of us, but um, 
I'm curious, building on what um, Jeff was just saying, what did the Heidelberg Catechism say? Because I I believed all of you know all of the worst of hell being real and internal damnation, and then so what did it say? Because I don't really remember. And and um and how did it get to from the Bible to that? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it was an evolution uh, through church councils and, and so on and so forth, and uh, maybe Mike has the answer here. I do have a definition of help from the Westminster um, Dictionary of Biblical Terms. Um, I have no answer. <laughs> but maybe a question. So as, as a CRC, actually mission kid, um, I, and really to the credit of, I think, my parents and my teachers and our pastors, I, I don't, I remember it being taught as sort of, and even with the Jonathan Edwards sermon that if you are afraid of God, if you are afraid of eternal fire, realize that God's love has you. And that God's fire web is, is going to not let you come out of it. Um, and not so much as a punitive thing, but as, well, if in your mind this is a thing that you're afraid of, um, God's love has you. That's a sign that uh, maybe my memory is just weird. Um, but that's what I remember about. Yeah, no, appreciate that. Appreciate that, Mike. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think piggybacking on that too. Um, I was troubled even as a young person about the the dichotomy or the tension between a God that's loving, accepting, redemptive, um, and caring with a God that would be so punitive. And I lived in a neighborhood where almost everybody was a different denomination than I was, and so I was told by other kids that I was going to hell, and it was like really troubling. Like, how can you say that? And um, it didn't it didn't um, jive with what my my intuitions, my deep seated intuitions, about God as a loving, forgiving, merciful God. Thank you, Cheryl. Yeah, you know, even in our uh, parable. This morning, Jesus used the image of fish being thrown out, or good fish that being sorted, right? But bad fish don't exist forever in pain, you know, like they die after a while. And, and even with the imagery of the, the angels, there's no sense of eternal anything, but that we bring that into it, and then we read it and think, oh, look, it's there. I think it's a decision of focus that a lot of the churches have, have made in terms of really um, exploring what it means to be a witness to Christ and to live with Christ on a regular basis. Um, they want to go to the punitive side. And it's, it's a decision that we all make on a regular basis of how punitive you feel like um, is, is going to take, how punitive it has to be in order to change us to go God's way. And I think that's exactly opposite of what Christ did. Thank you, Ruth. And I think some of the, uh, what in the text we were reading this morning uh, reflects some of the urgency that Jesus is feeling. Like they were living in a volatile, uncertain time. They've got Rome over them. There's political uncertainty, economic uncertainty, social uncertainty, and it's his call to we need to live in God's way we need to live the way of peace the, the way of love and the alternative is not good 
So being the master of Google that I am, I found what the, what the Heidelberg Catechism has right. to say about L. So here we go. Um, I, this is not everything, but this one kind of sums it up. So this is question 11, but is God not also merciful? And the answer is God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. There you go. <laughs> yeah, and I think that the justice thing is, is often used as a way to rationalize it, but it also makes God feel a little thin-skinned or, I don't know, something. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just have a few thoughts. Um, uh, one being, you know, as a kid thinking about this kind of God of wrath and how it just didn't with everything I had read about Jesus, um, everything that came out of the mouth of Jesus. And then as I you know, got older and started exploring the text in its context, realizing how much of that language was actually talking about the stuff going in the world at that time, in these heavens and these hells. And, um, but also I had this sense of you know, imagining the worst of the Caesars and imagining the worst of um, the rulers that were that were over um, the first century Christians, and thinking, "Wow, God is worse than that." You know, that's if God can put people in hell forever, then He's worse than that. Right? Yeah. He's worse than these hor people who we were told were horrible, who were torturing and unimaginable things. Like God's worse than that. And why would I want to serve a God who's worse than that? But then also as, um, as someone who uh, works with, um, who does a lot of civil discourse training and um, talking about tribalism and all of that, I do see too there is this human tendency that we all have, psychological, there's sociological elements, um, neurobiological elements, to why we tend towards tribalism and why we need to be able to know who's in and who's out of our tribe. And there's great security in that. And so I wonder if some of our interpretation throughout history on hell has been just that, mm -hmm. part of our need for to be part of a tribe and to say these people are not in the tribe. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it's the ultimate, you're not part of us, and uh, it's not good that you're not part of us. So, <laughs> yeah, and the context thing is super important. You know, a lot of the words that we translate as hell are either Sheol or Hades or Gehenna. Gehenna referred to the Hinnom Valley, uh, where uh, certain folks in the history of Israel had sacrificed children by fire, and, and, oh. and it became this sort of metaphor for the most awful thing you could imagine. But it was an actual place, like, on Earth, uh, and so it's helpful to remember that, uh, because we just see the word hell in English and bring in a whole lot of stuff, but that's not the word in the original text, and there's a lot of other context to understand that. I have such a uh, a pleasant view of the afterlife, but there is one question, and that is, if there isn't hell, what does God do about Hitler? Mm. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to go down the hall in heaven? <laughs> For me, from a church history standpoint, um, I saw it as a means of control. Mm -hmm. yes, control. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, David, here, folks, you've triggered some really good memories of my Catholic upbringing. <laughs> no, no, I am serious about this. Um, the good nuns and, and young women who taught me the Baltimore Catechism kind of treated heaven, uh, hell, uh, let's not, not forget limbo and purgatory. They were answers on a test. They weren't, they weren't trying to frighten us. They had to teach that so that we taught us. But the Baltimore Catechism said to trust our conscience, our informed conscience. And that was scripture and the priesthood and pope. But our conscience was what was primary. And that's what landed for me. And uh, I'll be forever thankful to those folks for that. That's very I just remember this kind of constant discussion of, are you really saved? Are you in? Are you out? Can you lose your salvation? Do you really know Jesus? And some people I knew had very dramatic, decisive conversion experiences, and that's fine. And some of us kind of gradually kind of got into it. And, but yeah, that, again, that was the whole impetus for evangelizing. And, you know, are you, but, but then once you did believe, did you really believe? Are you really sure that you're in? And, you know, some of those lingering feelings I still have. Yeah, I prayed to receive Jesus at least 10 times. Right. Ten times like 12. <laughs> Mostly because I was so afraid. Just this past week, I saw a billboard somewhere, and I'm not sure I'm remembering it correctly because I'm inclined to spin off into my own thoughts about it, but I think it says something like, what have you done today to keep somebody from hell? Something like that? I may have seen it on the way home from... And I saw it, and I thought as I continued to drive, hmm, we served dinner at Refresh last night. Maybe that was a little less hell for the people who were there. And as I sit and reflect on the comments today, I said, hmm, I don't think that's what the billboard was inspired. So I'm grateful for my own spin off on that. And, um, that viewpoint is alive and well here. Yeah, thank you. I've seen similar billboards, uh, 131, I think, and North. Where, Maybe that's where it was. Um, yeah, and, and I agree that much of what Jesus seems to be inviting us into in his life and teachings is how are we bringing the kingdom or taste of heaven now, or how are we making life worse or tasting hell? Now, uh, that's certainly much more a focus of the teaching than um, what we imagine the popular notions of that. Yeah. Comments online? Yeah. Good, thank you. Krista Anderson commented online as a UCC kid and a psychologist, listening, listening to this coercive manipulation used with kids and knowing the impact of it on their psychological health is incredibly disturbing. Mm. Yes. Correct. Absolutely. Thank you, Krista. I did have some more notes. Let me see if there's anything else. <laughs> <laughs> useful. <clears throat> so, um, in his book, Love Wins, uh, Rob Bell says, Millions of people in our world were told that God so loved the world 
that God sent God's Son to save the world, we read that earlier, and that if they accept and believe in Jesus, they'll be able to have a beautiful, they'll be able to have a relationship with God. And he says, beautiful. But there's more. Millions have also been taught that if they don't believe or don't accept in the right way, and they uh, were hit by a car and died later that day, then God would have no choice but to punish them forever in conscious torment in hell. God would, in essence, become a fundamentally different being to them in that moment of death, a different being to them forever. Prior, God would be a lovely, heavenly, loving Heavenly Father who will go to extraordinary lengths to have a relationship with them, but then in the blink of an eye become a cruel, mean, vicious tormentor who would ensure that they had no escape from an endless future of agony. And he just says uh, that kind of God is simply devastating. But that's what we're presented with so much in church. And he talks about how there are conferences about how churches can be more, quote, relevant and missional and, and welcoming and reach out and connect and build relationships with people who aren't in the church. And he says all that can be helpful. But at the heart of it, we have to ask just what kind of God is behind all of this. Because if something is wrong with your God, if your God is loving one second and cruel the next, if your God will punish people for all eternity for sins committed in a few short years, no amount of clever marketing or compelling language or good music or great coffee will be able to disguise <laughs> that one true, glaring, untenable, unacceptable, awful reality. <laughs> it's always going to be extra hot later, so I'll go ahead and it can. So, um, yeah, I think we could go on for quite a while, but maybe a last thought. Does the doctrine of hell have value? Like we just heard, I would, you know, what about Hitler is often a place that we might go. And wondering if folks have a thought on that. always gets me a little teary um but when charles manson died i kind of asked my mom that question that you know kind of your hitler question like you know like don't you think that that jackass would be suffering <laughs> and and my mom was like no she was like sharon tate was probably there welcoming welcoming him with open arms and letting him know god's love beautiful that no one's beyond that love is is a beautiful about a decade ago I met a kid and he was describing how he doesn't believe in God doesn't believe in heaven um, just a person who described himself as not having a faith and I um, asked him well you told me what you don't believe in what do you believe in and he said I believe there's a hell and I said, well, that's interesting. Why is there a hell? And he said, there has to be a place where there will be some judgment for what I've experienced in my life. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the concept of hell in terms of comfort and justice, um, again, I think it's difficult to get into a philosophical discussion about hell with a capital H later on in life when we don't know much about that. But we certainly know <coughs> the little hells, the little, the, the, the lowercase, um, hells that we experience. So the injustice, 
um, the violence, the power, the structures and systems of this age, of this world, there are things we can do about this hell that many people are suffering. And I think that that concept can motivate us to be better people. So, and that's, that was gonna be my question earlier, is why the focus on capital hell someplace else when we're just surrounded by lowercase hell everywhere? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, that that's definitely the direction I would go. I think the, the focus on the capital H is because it has formed so many of us in our religious life and upbringing and coming from places and spaces where that is the motivator for faith. That is the purpose of your faith is to avoid that and help others avoid that. Um, but I agree that what are we doing about the hell-like realities on this earth. And the thing you noted about this person is super interesting and, and understandable that when you've experienced some of that firsthand, the idea that there will be justice for horrific things, um, that's meaningful. Just to piggyback on that, um, I'm reminded of when Jesus took the disciples to Caesarea Philippi and this is a place where he takes them of, um, there was uh, horrible sacrifices that happened here. Um, it was called, this place was called the gates of hell. Um, it, there was this big uh, spring of water that came up from the ground and, um, and Jesus takes his disciples, walks them like crazy amount of miles to this spot to point out to them all this sacrificial stuff, this horrible stuff that's happening there. And he says, on this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell won't stand. And I think, yeah, that, that is, that's about right now, right? Where the church goes into these places of utter chaos and horror and lives out this way of Jesus. And that is, and then we knock that out, right? That's where we transform this chaos into shalom, into something beautiful, if we actually do that. Yeah, that's, that's good, that's helpful. That, uh... There's a lot there. Thank you. That's super helpful. I really appreciate the sharing of what uh, spoke with the young man, and I'm just hit again by by my my going into this as a you know, white privileged male who studied all that stuff, and so I can have a fairly um, Cavalier sort of sense, uh, yeah. Um, but but to get pulled back in an instant with the sharing of that story, how different that is when you look at it from the underside. And so I, I mean, that's just I, that's I, I, that's just really important. Then trying to struggle with this, what does it mean from the from the underside? Is just a profound. Also, profound reflection on my own. Once again, the space of not seeing. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that. Appreciate that vulnerability and, and reflection, Doug. Absolutely. Any other thoughts? And then I may bring us to a some sort of beginning. <laughs> Got two here. French existentialist Jean Paul Sartre said that hell is other people, and his <laughs> metaphor is being locked in a room with horrible people. Mm. 
uh, which sounds to me like a lot of churches, but um. <laughs> I must use that for the bulletin cover quote. So. <laughs> but what, what about Hitler? I, I guess I would like to think that Hitler has to stay in that timeout chair a very long time. <laughs> there are ways for justice that, that fall short of eternal conscious torment is a good question to ask. So the question I have is like, how, how do you let go, this is my own personal struggle, of all of that that you grew up with that was just ingrained in, to think of things differently? Like I want to, and I do, but it's, it's sometimes it's hard because you just revert back to yeah. what you were taught growing up. Yeah, they're foundation, foundational things uh, that we've been handed, many of us, not all of us, and it's hard to, hard to undo that or hard to think of, well, what then? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what part of this conversation is, and we're not going to come to a place of you know, knowing the answers, or you know, all even agreeing, and that's okay, right? We're all on a on a spectrum of, of, of this and many other things, and, and that's that's okay. But I think to be wrestling is is a good place to be. One more here? Did you have a hand up? No. Okay. All right. Um, another good uh, resource for those who want to go further: uh, Sharon Baker's book, Raising Hell. A great book and really gets in academically to a lot of the stuff uh, that we only hinted at this morning in terms of uh, the scripture, various verses that are often key verses used to support this, um, doctrines and um, creeds of the church, and you know, middle medieval writers all the way through today. Excellent, excellent resource. Uh, rethinking, subtitled Rethinking Everything You've Been Taught About God's Wrath and Judgment. And one of the things she notes is that uh, one of the things um, that hell does is that perpetrators of religious violence and injustice often rationalize their acts or condone the violence of others because they say, well, if God can treat people this way and even worse than we're able to do, then that justifies our own actions of violence. But then she notes the God whom Jesus revealed to us is the God of love who calls us to come and live as active participants in the transforming of the world from one where violence dominates to one where peace prevails. And that's where I certainly land and I think many of us uh, feel uh, compelled to go. And we also have to think about Jesus giving up his right to self-defense and reprisals against violence, right? Peter pulls out his sword, and, and Jesus chastises him for that. And Jesus calls us to love our enemies and to forgive people 70 times 7. And so then you have to ask, is Jesus asking us to do more than God is willing to do? And so agreeing with what's said that our invitation, I think, from Jesus is much more about how are we living today to create conditions of equity, justice, healing, and a taste of heaven, and reducing the hells that are in our world. So I just want to end us, and I hope this started a conversation, this certainly wasn't meant to end a conversation. Uh, so if you have a lot more bubbling within, uh, let's talk more, and maybe pup theology is a good place or other spots. Um, 
to talk more about this, but I want to finish with the way Rob Bell finishes his book, Love Wins. He says, whatever you've been told about the end, the end of your life, the end of time, the end of the world, Jesus passionately urges us to live like the end is here, now, today. Love is what God is. Love is why Jesus came. And love is why he continues to come year after year to person after person. And so may you experience this vast, expansive, infinite, indestructible love that has been yours all along. May you discover that this love is as wide as the sky and as small as the cracks in your heart that no one else knows about. And may you know deep in your bones that love wins. Amen. 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 So. invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.